internet? Welcome to Film Theory. Call us Detective Pikachu, because we're solving the mysteries you didn't ask about and might not have actually wanted to know about, because I'm starting in on what's turning out to be one of the most monumental feats of my entire film theory career. I am dissecting every major Disney movie, that means every Disney animated film that's been in theaters since 1939, to determine once and for all which is the deadliest of all the Disney movies, and if I can swing it, what is the overall total kill count for the entire Disney canon, and whoo boy, it is so so much harder than it looks. In case you haven't noticed over the years, Disney movies, for all their cute talking animals, can get surprisingly dark, and the characters are pretty darn good at killing one another, and in some really creative ways too. I mean, Clayton in Tarzan hanging himself with a vine, Oliver and company's electrocution by subway track. Some of this stuff is better than the slasher movies that you see in Dead Meets Kill Count series. I mean, sure, some Disney movies only manage light emotional scarring. <laughs> But when you start dealing with dragons, snow monsters, and very sharp sewing equipment, you start running into some serious collateral damage in a hurry. But just how much are we talking about? Well, it is way more than you'd think, especially considering that this lineup is all G or PG rated and intended for kids. But looking across all of Disney's history, across its 60 Disney Animation Studio theatrical releases, I'm aiming to find out where the mouse is not just killing it at the box office, but also literally killing everyone you see on screen. And if you think this is just a matter of a little counting here and there, you are solely mistaken. There is so much more here than meets the eye, as evidenced by the fact that I thought this was just gonna be one straightforward episode and has now blown up into a three-episode mini-saga through the depths of the Disney catalog, covering everything from the ecology of the Pacific Islands to the biology of the African Serengeti to the ancient history of the Grecian Isles. Oh yeah, we are going thorough with this one. I'm telling you now, by the end of this little mini-series, you are gonna be struggling to crawl out from under the heaps of animated bodies piled up on top of you. So what is the deadliest Disney movie? Place your bets now and see if you're right at the end. I don't know, you can make a little bet about it with your family, or whoever you feel comfortable talking about this topic with. Hey, Mom and Dad, what do you think the deadliest Disney movie is? Bet you five bucks it's Meet the Robinsons. Don't do that, that would be a stupid, stupid bet. Spoiler alert, it is not Meet the Robinsons. Like I said, approaching the concept of the most deadly Disney movie is deceptively complicated. Take, for instance, this rabbit, this rabbit, and this rabbit. One is the white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland, one is Thumper from Bambi, and one is just, I guess, like one of Snow White's supportive woodland friends. They're all alive, they're all cute bunnies, but for the purposes of this theory, they don't all count. And this is where we have to lay ourselves some ground rules. Should we count the rabbit who carries a pocket watch because he's wearing people clothes? What about the one who defends Bambi in his time of crisis? For this theory, I drew the line around sentience versus non-sentience of the characters deaths. One thing that's really obvious in Disney movies is that different species may or may not be sentient in any given movie. Usually humans, or at least humanoids, take the spotlight, but in movies like The Lion King, animals are the focus. They are clearly sentient, and most importantly for our purposes, they can speak. So let's just set the rule. If animals can speak, or if they act as intentionally driven characters, like Maleficent's pet raven Diablo, then they count in our overall death total. We also can't extrapolate beyond the actions taken in the movie that that we're watching. Did the colony established by John Smith eventually go on to kill thousands of natives in the 1995 Pocahontas? Yeah, absolutely, but that doesn't happen during the runtime of the movie because we can't have that punky white guy lose, right? So he gets a pass, at least in this context. History would beg to differ. And finally, we can only count kills that are actually caused by the characters in the movie. For example, in Hercules, we can't count the actions taken off screen by Hades in his normal role as God of Death since he's just presiding over the people who are dying as usual. Instead, we can only count the actions he takes directly against Hercules and the other gods. Also guys, no sequels. There is nothing less satisfying than coming out at the end of one of these really long analyses only to find out that Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time, actually kills the most people because it creates this time paradox that threatens to destroy Cinderella and her entire kingdom. That takes Ralph Breaks the Internet and Rescuers Down Under off the table. Yep, just take my word for it guys, we're all dodging a bullet by sticking only to the original in-theater releases. We're already covering 58 other movies, <laughs> these are long episodes. So maybe if you like this concept, we could do another tournament of the sequels or Pixar movies or whatever. Just 
later. I need a Disney break after this one. So with our handy dandy rule book established, we're ready to face death head on, or at least in our Disney movies. Our first task is to carve up our 58 contender movies into more manageable categories to see who has a fighting chance, or should I say a dying chance, of claiming the ultimate title, Disney's Deadliest Movie. If you look across the spectrum from 1939 to today, you'll see that these movies fall into a few pretty distinct categories when it comes to death. You have no death movies, single or double death movies, low kill count movies, and then you have the really heavy hitters. There aren't too many mid-level death movies in Disney's canon, surprisingly. You're either all in on the murder, or you're not, and you're questionably family-friendly. Our job is to figure out who's in that last category, and then suss out who's the biggest offender from from the last 80 years of filmography. Starting at the very beginning, there is a whole slew of movies in the Disney canon where the kill count is either zero or just a really low number. Movies like Dumbo, The Jungle Book, Sword in the Stone, and 101 Dalmatians are all no-kill movies. <laughs> as are Robin Hood and the feature films of Winnie the Pooh. In our no-kill films, the antagonist is usually thwarted in some comedic way and then just kinda gives up their evil plot. Cruella DeVille from 101 Dalmatians, Car Wreck just gives up. Shere Khan from The Jungle Book, also Fire on Tail, just gives up. Or quite frankly, there's just not enough movie there to have time to kill anyone off. Man, a lot of these movies are a lot shorter than I remember. What's that one supposed to mean, you ask? Well, I'm talking about the Disney movies you probably haven't seen or even heard about from Disney's forgotten decade, the 1940s. The reason it's the forgotten decade is probably because during the 1940s, a large portion of Disney's writing and animation staff were drafted into World War II, sometimes leaving their stories half done or half animated and making it necessary for whoever was left in the studio to cobble together a feature film from whatever was left. The movies that came out during this time... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply kind of had plots, they had little to no dialogue, and are sometimes even just repurposed pieces of animation that were left over from other movies while everyone else was out supporting the war effort. This is why so many of these no-kill movies are musical reviews featuring questionable live-action segments of Donald Duck sexually harassing women and totally uncomfortable race relations. It's interesting to note here, too, that the drafted Disney animators weren't trading in their pens for guns, they weren't out on the front lines fighting, they were actually still wielding their animator pencils. They were still developing films using the exact same skills they used at Disney, only now they were drafted into making propaganda films for the war effort. In fact, if you want a really fascinating watch, check out Victory Through Air Power, an official Disney release that outlines the history of air combat, which in and of itself is fascinating, but also was one of their first major propaganda films meant for public consumption. I just didn't include it in the overall kill count since, you know, it's World War II. There were a lot of deaths, but they were historically accurate deaths. It's just a fun fact that I came across while I was researching for this episode and I thought you might enjoy, but it also explains why you don't see a lot of full character arcs or deaths during the films from this time period. It also makes you look at propaganda films and Disney movies just a little bit differently. Probably merits a theory for another day. Regardless, for as short, boring, and culturally inappropriate as a lot of these might be, for this theory I'm digging up all the skeletons of the past and need to know whether anyone dies in Disney features like the Three Caballeros and Fun and Fancy Free. And holy shattered childhood. Some of these movies are shockingly brutal. While most of them do rack up zero kills, you have yourself some horrific surprises. Like Make Mine Music, where a whale, whose only goal in life is to sing at the opera, gets himself harpooned to death in a mistake and takes four sailors down in the process. Also, a wolf dies, so that one has a total of six. Or you have Melody Time, where we see the story of Little Toot, who honestly should be renamed Big Body Count after his prank 
Franks decimate a giant tanker and an entire city block. That's a body count in the double, if not triple digits. Next, there's also a slew of movies where only the head villain gets the axe. Or just the head villain and like one or two other people he kills during his first scene of the movie just to show how evil of a villain he is. In these cases, they've already shown themselves to be 100% irredeemable, so you don't have to feel badly about their gruesome, grotesque murder. Snow White, only the evil queen dies. Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent, and her underling Raven Diablo. Lady and the Tramp, only kills a rat, but remember it counts because it's a movie filled with sentient animals. The Rescuers have Medusa, who is just a recycled version of Cruella de Vil. The Great Mouse Detective has Radigan, an underling, and two of his henchmen. And Peter Pan loses two pirates. Surprisingly, not Captain Hook, so yay! Despite the fact that there's still like dozens of other murderous pirates running around Neverland, and also killer mermaids, if you know the source material. Other notable mentions from this category, Snow White singing with a smile. All your cares fly away right after her attempted murder. Like, I've heard of the power of positive feelings, but jeez, you might want to take a couple minutes and process what just happened to you, Snowy. Also, coming from the dishonorable mentions of this 60 movie spree, Fantasia 2000, which only has one death, a shockingly handsy jack in the box, but also features the single most absurd moment in all of Disney animated canon a sequence of Donald Duck on board Noah's Ark. Like, Two by two animals, and then there's just Donald Duck. Noah literally reaches out to Donald Duck saying, Come, come aboard my biblical ark? What? And that's already after you've had scenes of flying whales and Penn and Teller's cringy magic hand bits. I mean, if you have never seen Fantasia 2000, this movie is like the hottest of hot messes. Last things to call out here real quick, because I know I'm going to hear about them in the comments. Tangled, yes, we see a huge dam break, but it's in a secluded area of the wilderness and everyone swept away by the water ultimately resurfaces later. So there's only one death there, and that's Mother Gothel at the end. Also, Wreck-It Ralph forced me to think through my rules since we see thousands of cybugs die, but remember, they're not sentient, so they don't count. Also, we see Sergeant Calhoun's husband die in a flashback, but remember, she is just video game code, meaning that her husband never actually existed as a program in the system. So only one death there, which is the big bad of Turbo, who died in a video game that wasn't his, and therefore he is just outright dead. No more continues for him. Tallying up the Disney films with just a single digit death toll gives us 41, which leaves us 17 left to cover. But this is where things start to get difficult. It seems like it should be just an easy task to go through and count dead bodies, but in a number of these cases, the analysis starts to get pretty complex. Like Frozen, we see Anna and Elsa's parents die in a shipwreck, but how many actually bit the dust in that scene? I mean, sure, we see a third person welcoming them on board the ship, but clearly there needs to be more crew on here than just him. When you do the research, technically there's probably about 33 deaths total in Frozen. Obviously the parents and Marshmallow, who does count, because if Olaf dies, you would probably count him, and so Marshmallow should also count, but also there's the crew of 30 people that it would take to man a Hulk ship of that size from that era. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Oftentimes in Disney movies, they present us with a scene of some light action or violence, but usually cut away or gloss over the actual ramifications of those scenes. As a result, it's easy to overlook the skyrocketing body count that's happening right in front of your eyes. Chicken Little is actually a really good example of this, and a really bad example of 3D animation. This movie is U-G-L-Y and ain't got no alibi. But if you consider the animation rough, the plot is a whole heck of a lot rougher. Chicken Little claims that the sky is falling, and he's right, because they're being invaded by aliens, and the thing that's falling is a faulty piece of alien spacecraft. At first, all you Chicken Little aficionados might think that this movie would have a zero death count, since everyone that we see get zapped by the aliens ultimately returns home at the end of the movie. Okay, everything's been put back to normal, except for this one over here. Foxy? But that would mean that you overlooked the mass murder that you witness within the first two minutes of the movie, where we watch as a water tower rolls through town, causing massive destruction. Oh sure, most people escape, including this comedically long string of rabbit babies, but not everyone is so lucky, specifically the people in this theater. Notice that this theater is completely destroyed, and cut to the wide shot, no one gets out. So adding up all the bodies crushed under that giant sphere, we get ourselves 17. Meanwhile, in Hunchback of Notre Dame, the one scene is 
is the fire scene near the end, where at least six separate houses are burned to the ground because the families inside won't hand over gypsies to the authorities. Find the girl, burn the city to the ground, so be it. Tack that onto the several villagers killed in the last scene, plus the hunchback's mom and Frollo, for a grand total of about 47. But those two were just the warm-up. Home on the Range is the little-known and very little-watched western comedy about animals trying to save their ranch from a... Ugh, I can't even make this stuff up. Animals trying to save their ranch from an evil cattle rustler who yodels to hypnotize cows to do his bidding. It was a movie that was so bad that it killed Disney animation for like five solid years. And you know what else it killed? About 304 sapient cattle who were yodeled, hypnotized, and then sold off to the black market of Black Angus. 5,000 cows are saved before the end of the movie, but the 304 depicted in this one scene are never found again. And yes, rest assured, internet, I counted each and every steer. <laughs> of Disney flops, Treasure Planet, which came out two years earlier and lost him even more money, about $30 million this time. But not only was this a massive failure, it also came with a massive body count. If you count just the explicit deaths in the movie, there's 17. The hotel explosion at the beginning of the movie racks up nine, plus a couple of pirates and murder plots sprinkled in along the way and you got yourself a delicious murdery stew. However, it's this opening storybook scene that causes us some issues. Yes, it is a children's story, but we find out later that the pirate Captain Flint is in fact a real person, and that the treasure planet is in fact a real place, and so presumably everything depicted in this fairy tale is true, meaning that this cruise ship was full of real people and was actually ransacked, and that everyone on board was left for dead. So, running through the numbers real quickly, Flint's ship here is roughly the size of Queen Anne's Revenge, one of the most famous pirate ships in all of history, one of the ones that belonged to Blackbeard. That ship was about 100 feet or 30 meters long. Based on this wide shot of both ships, we see that the cruise ship is going to be about six times longer and four times taller than the pirate ship, meaning that it's going to be about 600 feet or 180 meters long. Modern cruise ships of that size usually have between 700 and 1,000 passengers and additional 300 crew members on board. So let's lowball it and say that 1,000 deaths total are in this scene, suddenly jumping our movie with a total of 17 up to 1,000. And 17. Like I said at the beginning, all it takes is one scene and the numbers fluctuate dramatically. And with that, we have ourselves a new frontrunner in the contest for Disney's deadliest movie. I don't know if fictional massive losses of life are something to celebrate, but uh, okay. Having established a new leader, I need a bit of a break. There's only so much early 2000s era Disney that I can take in any one sitting, so let's wash it off us like taking a cold shower with some much beloved Disney classics. Classics that are so brutal, I literally cannot watch them because they are so sad. That's right, we are talking about Bambi. The universe Bambi establishes implies that any forest creature from deer to rabbit can talk, think, and make character developing decisions, meaning that any animal that dies during the course of this movie is gonna get added into our kill count. And aside from the infamous scene of Bambi's mother being shot, there's also a dramatic forest fire scene. Remember, this is what passed as children's entertainment. Having just gone through a forest fire here in California where the fire burned literally across the street from my house, I've gained a sudden appreciation for how devastating and scary these sorts of fires can be. I assumed that in Bambi, all those woodland creatures would quickly become crispy fried, but surprisingly, that couldn't be further from the truth. National Geographic published a 2014 piece entitled, What Do animals do in a wildfire, where seasoned bush firefighter Gabriel Dustachio claimed that he didn't usually see animals trapped in the fires. The article goes on to point out that the loss of life for animals in these situations is probably smaller than we'd think, something that's supported by yet another article from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. Because animals have such better senses than we do, they're able to evacuate areas on fire long before it becomes an issue, and most deaths only come from old or injured animals. And that's an important fact for our purpose not just because we love animals, but because in Bambi, Bambi is the injured animal running away from the fire. He just came off of a brutal head-to-head -head battle against a 
another deer, and yet he still manages to escape, along with the birds, squirrels, and rabbits that we see making it away from the flames. So how many died? Well, while there aren't any significant studies on the numbers of wildlife lost during forest fires, the Rim Fire in Yosemite National Park, the fifth largest in California's history, only saw about 345 elk die out of an estimated 50,000. There were also 36 mule deer, 12 moose, 6 black bears, and 9 bison lost to the flames. And that was a huge fire, whereas in Bambi, we can actually see the outer limits of the flame. So let's overestimate and say that Bambi's fire is about a fifth of the size of the Rim Fire. So about 80 animal casualties altogether. Oh yeah, and let's not forget about mom. 81. If we want to start getting into higher animal death counts, well, we're gonna have to start looking outside the forest and take it under the sea. Yep, this next fun, deathly subcategory is one I like to call the fishy queens, because almost all their fatalities are just sapient sea creatures biting the dust in massive quantities. The first surprising entrant in this category is Alice in Wonderland, which racks up a kill count of 12 just from this walrus polishing off a dozen oysters in a scene that is surprisingly horrifying because, look at this, they are wearing bonnets. They are established as baby oysters. Add to that four playing cards who are hauled off to lose their heads, and Alice rings in with a surprising death toll of 16. Certainly not to get at the title of Disney's deadliest movie, but it is enough to get at Disney's deadliest movie when it comes to killing children. Continuing to fill watery graves by the dozens are Brother Bear and Pinocchio, which both lose a shocking number of sapient fish. In Brother Bear, we never actually see the fish talk, so it could be questionable that they're sapient, but I'm gonna assume that they are because every other animal that we see in the film is. So how many fish die in this movie? Well, they literally have an entire song dedicated to fish genocide. 81 salmon bite the dust in just that three-minute scene alone, which gives us a whopping 27 deaths per minute. But it doesn't even tip the scales. The fish scales, that is, when compared to Pinocchio. Surprisingly, the only deaths in Pinocchio are the fish that Monstro eats. At first, I thought Pinocchio would have a massive death count. I mean, after all, we calculated how many little children were kidnapped and turned into donkeys in our Kids for Sale episode on Pinocchio, and it would be a huge kill count. 2,100 boys per boatload. But notice that the children in the movies aren't being slaughtered, they're just being transformed and sold off to the salt mines. Now, don't get me wrong, I am sure that many of them are having horrifically awful, painful, and slow deaths, but here's the thing. Once they're shipped out, they're beyond the purview of this movie, thereby taking them out of contention for this theory based on the rules that we set. I know, it's a bummer they don't count, but as consolation for losing those donkeys, we get ourselves a ton of fish. According to the relevant frames of the movie, if you count the fish that Monstro eats in the ocean, you can see him consume an entire school of 83 tuna. Sorry, Charlie. To corroborate this number, I did some research, only to find that the original novel, The Adventures of Pinocchio, written back in 1883, doesn't specify the type of tuna that we're dealing with here. It's shocking and unacceptable, I know, for a children's fairy tale, a fairy tale that we read our children. Do not tell us the individual species of tuna that a giant fictional whale is eating. Can't believe the drivel that we feed to kids. It does, however, note that the tuna are big. According to the novel, they are, quote, as big as a two-year-old horse. The Disney version doesn't quite live up to that standard, but from that description, we can at least expect that what we're dealing with here is the largest variety of real tuna out there, which is the bluefin tuna, a tuna that can actually grow up to 1,600 pounds in weight. Schools of bluefin tuna range from about 60 to 100 fish per school, so our estimate of 83 being eaten in the scene is right on the mark for an entire school eaten by Monstro. Today, these fish sometimes go for thousands of dollars at auctions and become some of the best sushi in the world. So ironically, inside of that whale, Geppetto and Pinocchio were basically sitting on a gold mine. But oh well, no use beating a dead fish. Let's move on. The last in our fishy queen category is actually a fishy princess, the Little Mermaid, which may not be top in the charts, but at least definitely scores points for creativity. These eight sentient sea grubs get sacrificed to make Ariel's legs. Ursula personally polishes off a shrimp in a barnacle, five fish die in the opening scene, and Zootalor, nine are recently deceased in the kitchen. Flotsam and Jetsam are toasted by Ursula by accident, and Ursula, in one of the single most epic Disney villain deaths ever, is stabbed in the stomach by the sharp bow of a sunken ship that then sinks back into the sea. Scary, but certainly not as scary as the ending of the original Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, where in one version, Ariel turns into sea foam, and in the other, she stabs herself so that her blood becomes the colors of the sunset in the ocean. And now we have entered the big leagues.
leagues of Disney kill counting, the Lion King. With Scar and his band of hyenas decimating an entire lion pride territory. At the beginning of this whole theory, my personal bet was on this one to win, and here's why. We begin with arguably the scariest Disney villain in Scar, one of the only villains who actually succeeds in his evil plot. He kills one of the heroes, but oh no, that's not enough. He then goes on to cause a massive ecological collapse that devastates the entire Pride Lands, so much so that in the movie's original script, they had Pride Rock being destroyed entirely. But what does this translate to in terms of raw deaths? Most obviously, there's Mufasa, the one that Scar personally kills, though he actually kills a zebra and two hyenas before this. But the real story here is all about the starvation. According to Sarabi, Scar, there is no food. The herds have moved on. So what exactly happened? And if Scar has been eating so many antelope, then why is he still so skinny? Well, in real life, lions usually only kill a very small number of animals, considering their size. A lion may go for three or four days between eating, and even then, they tend to share just one carcass with the entire pride. But when Scar starts letting the hyenas in on the same land as the lions, the herds start leaving for safety. So how much devastation is there? Well, it all hinges on how big the pride lands are. Mufasa tells us in one of the most memorable lines in 90s cinema, Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Wow. Well, that's great, Dad, but just how far is that? Using some pixel measurements of this shot in the opening, and then using the average height of a lion of 3.9 feet, I worked out that Pride Rock at the very top is about 60 feet tall. From a 60 foot height, the horizon appears at 9.9 .9 miles away, meaning that Mufasa's kingdom is roughly a 100 square mile area, which unbelievably is actually the area that one would expect a pride of lions to control, according to National Geographic. I don't know if the Disney anime did this much research or just lucked into it, but that has got to be one of the most incredible factoids I have ever uncovered by doing these episodes. Suffice it to say, we know that Scar brings ecological ruin to about 100 square miles of plain lands, but then how much death would that really cause? Let's start with wildebeests, one of the key herds that we see in the movie, mainly when they're stampeding over Mufasa, which has got to be one of the biggest wildebeest herds in history, by the way. Roughly 1,000 if you actually count them. That's almost twice the size of a normal herd of wildebeest, meaning that when Scar starts out his reign, Pride Rock has one of the most vibrant, enormous wildebeest herds in Africa. And to chase him out of the area is gonna mean a lot of increased hunting and lost food for everyone in the Pride Lands. Scar wants to allow not just some hyenas, but a whole society of hyenas into the Pride Lands. I counted 139 total in this shot from Be Prepared, which is a massive amount of hyenas to drop into one contained area. Usually, hyena pack sizes top out at about 80, and with spotted hyenas, like the ones that we see in Lion King, that number is usually even smaller. So how much food would 139 hyenas eat? Hyenas consume roughly 11 kilograms, or 24 pounds of food every week. In nature, that may include its share of tasty wildebeest, but they can also chow down on all kinds of smaller critters and even some bugs. Of course, with Scar's regime giving the hyenas anything they want, we can imagine that a lot more of their diet is gonna be shifted towards the bigger game. Using the slaughter weight, or eatable weight of a wildebeest, we can calculate that 80 to 100 kilograms of wildebeest is gonna be enough to feed about seven to nine hyenas for a week. That means that each week, this massive hyena pack is gonna be chewing through about 20 wildebeests. Now, of course, we also have the lions, and lions don't just eat wildebeest, but we can use research documents like the seasonal diet and prey preference of the African lion in a waterhole-driven semi-arid savanna to figure out just how many other animals the lions would need to be killing in their normal distribution to feed just the hyenas. So each year, the combination of the hyenas and the lions would have to kill 110 buffalo, 27 elephants, 40 giraffes, 53 kudus, 30 zebras, 44 wildebeest, 20 warthogs, and 7 impalas. So that's a lot of animal death, but how long does this go on for? Well, when Mufasa dies, Simba's height indicates that he's between 2 and 4 months old, and when he returns to Pride Rock, he's a fully maned adult, which puts him at about 5 years old. So assuming 5 years of Scar's rule, and multiplying that by our 331 kills per year brings us to 1,655 extra deaths, due directly to Scar's promise to share his food with this enormous 139 hyena pack. Stick with me, and you'll never go hungry again! 
Oh yeah, and then Scar dies in the end. And that, my friends, is what it looks like to get into the big leagues. The new number to beat is Lion King with 1,660 deaths. After 53 movies with a whopping total of 3,518 total deaths, we only have five contenders remaining in our little battle royale. Will Mulan, Dinosaur, Atlantis, Hercules, or Moana be able to take the crown from the king, the Lion King? Let's start with what is bizarrely the most straightforward of these final five, Mulan. You literally see two villages burned, an army of good guys just outright dead in the snow, and the climax of the whole thing is, as we all remember, Mulan using fireworks to cause an avalanche that buries all but six of the invading Hun army. Initially, I thought the best way to do this would be to just look at history. Mulan the Disney movie, in case you didn't know, comes from the Chinese legend of Hua Mulan, where the female warrior Mulan does what the movie would teach us to expect her to do. She takes her aging father's place in the army to defend against invaders. Interestingly enough though, this is a really progressive story. In the original legend, she doesn't hide her true self from her family or sneak away in the middle of the night. Her family totally supports her decision to become a kick-butt warrior woman, and she doesn't even need to fall in love with another soldier. I mean, I get that Disney needed to create some conflict or something, but the 5th century historical version of this story is actually a lot cooler and a lot more progressive than the 1998 remake. Feels bad, man. Given that it's a legend, maybe based in some history, I thought we could estimate deaths based on the number of soldiers in Shen Yu's real army. But Shen Yu isn't a real person. If anyone, he's sort of super loosely based on Attila the Hun, but geographically, Attila's empire ended 3,000 miles west of the Northern Wei Empire, where the Mulan legend originates, and most of his battles were fought against Europeans. So we got ourselves the wrong enemy at the wrong end of the continent. So there were really no Attila battles that I could base this on. But I kept on trying. Shen Yu gets his name from the anglicized version of Shan Yu title, which is just a generic term for a Hun leader. It would be like watching a movie about America a thousand years from now, where the head of our country was somehow named Perez Odent. Given that Shan Yu is this totally generic title, there's still no battle that we could possibly base this finale of Mulan on. It also doesn't help us that there's no real historical record of Mulan. While her legend is really famous, she's usually left out of Chinese history texts, and seems to be treated like a symbol rather than a real historical person. So in the end, with not enough credible information to go on, I had to result to doing a death count the old-fashioned way, counting. Except that counting all these people the old-fashioned way would have taken a ridiculous amount of time, so I did it the new-fashioned way, a macro. Using GNU Octave, I processed the frames of Mulan to automatically count how large Shen Yu's horde was. The program converts the images into black and white, which in turn makes it easier for the computer to count the individual members of the army. I had to really fiddle around with the settings here to make sure that the program only was counting what I wanted it to, soon to be dead Huns. After some creative photoshopping, I came out with 11 deaths on the mountainside by aggressive firework, plus an additional 178 horsemen and 1,048 other soldiers in the avalanche itself, for a grand total of 1,237 kills. Add to that the two villages that we see burned, which, based on the size and proximity to the Great Wall of China, would have had about a hundred residents each, as well as the army that gets massacred trying to surprise attack Shen Yu, which we can count to be 31, but actually only adds 30 deaths since one messenger survives the massacre. How many men does it take to deliver a message? One. And then Shen Yu himself, we get ourselves a grand total of 1,468. It's worth noting here that I've seen a few other different versions of this death count circulating around online, ranging anywhere from 260 to the upwards of 2,000. I was as absolutely exhaustive in this analysis as possible, so I feel pretty darn good about that 1,468 number, but in the end, it still doesn't edge out Lion King. With Mulan out of the way, it's time to move on to the last of our movies in the princess category, going from Mulan in China-ish to Moana in Polynesia. Ish. After this, it's all gods and natural disasters, so Moana is gonna be our last hope for a princess to take home the murder crown. Gramatala becomes death number one early on in the movie, and death number two quickly skyrockets to death number 260 when Maui and Moana blow up and sink an entire society of Kakamura. The little coconut pirates they meet in that totally forgettable scene that's just sandwiched in the middle 
middle of the movie. Anyway, those little scamps are based on a Solomon Islands legend of the Kakamura, a race of very small people who would steal from island tribes. They're always depicted as cute and harmless, which is clearly why Moana and Maui feel it necessary to sink 259 of them, at my best count, mercilessly into the ocean and then smile about it to each other as they sail away, leaving no survivors in their wake. We did Brutal. Okay, that's 260. It's certainly a bloodbath, but it is far from record-breaking. But now we get to the curse. The whole movie hinges on the fact that Maui stole this powerful Heart of Tefiti and thereby brought about a thousand-year plague. Without her heart, Tefiti began to crumble, giving birth to a terrible darkness that will continue to spread until every one of us is devoured by inescapable death. That means that Maui would be responsible for a thousand years of darkness spreading across the Pacific Islands, which seems like it should be a shoe-in for death and destruction. I am certainly excited. Now, we do have to remember that except for a single crab god, animal species aren't sapient in this movie, so fish aren't gonna count. And as much as I'd like to think that that leaves us with plenty of room for death, the problem with this curse quickly becomes the fact that it's just now showing up to Moana's island, which means that it has been coming for a long time. Sure, Grandma's map at the beginning of the movie shows this darkness spreading really fast, and yet when Moana and her dad visit the top of the island, he shows her how long they've been living there without any issues. No darkness to contend with for, at my count, 12 generations. If we're being generous and say that a generation of leader is turning over every 25 years, which again, Moana's dad looks significantly older than this, but we're giving it a worst case scenario, we're looking at at least 300 years of easy fish and coconuts without even a hint of a plague. I mean, if you have that long to become a doomsday prepper and you don't build in any contingency plans, I think there's an argument to be made that you might have had it coming. Anyway, the point is, we need to see if this darkness is actually creeping up on anyone or if it's just totally avoidable. To figure that out, we're gonna have to measure how far the curse has traveled, which we know is gonna be from the heart of Tefiti, where the curse started, to Moana's island at the start of the movie. So all we need to know is how far she travels in her boat between those two locations and how long it takes to get there. Here's what we know. We see Moana travel for three, maybe four days at most. Her boat is captained by Maui, a master wayfinder and demigod, and her boat is a recreation of a Fijian kamikau, similar to an outrigger canoe, that can travel up to 15 knots or 17 miles per hour. We're gonna somehow have to ignore the fact that this boat was also built by those 300-year-old ancestors who landed on Moana's island, making this boat so impossibly old that there's no way it would actually sail, but whatever, Disney. We'll also assume that Moana didn't sleep at any point during the journey, something Maui considered a sign of weakness as a wayfinder. So at the boat's max rate, steered completely straight by an expert wayfinder, she could sail 1,632 miles or 2,626 kilometers in four days, which is pretty incredible, but we're giving them the best case scenario. This means that Moana's island is a little over 1,600 miles from the heart of Tefiti, or Curse Ground Zero. So okay, if the darkness started at Tefiti and is just now reaching Moana's island at least 300 years later, we're saying that it took 300 years for the darkness to spread 1,632 miles, meaning that the curse has spread 5.4 miles per year. That is nothing. When you're standing on the shore of a beach, the horizon you're seeing is 2.8 miles away. From the top of Moana's island, you would be seeing well over 12 miles into the horizon. You would literally see this darkness coming towards your shores for several years in advance, which is why Moana's deadliness just falls apart. With that much notice, it would be almost impossible to believe that seafaring Polynesian island dwellers who primarily fish for survival would be unable to, you know, get in their boats and sail to the next island over when they see the curse coming, thereby buying them a few extra years. Even Moana's tribe of people who are water-phobic are still gonna have time to see their shriveled coconuts, throw some flex tape onto those centuries-old boats, and move to the next island, which would buy them more time. So the final death tally for Moana, 261. Not 
even close. After a thoroughly disappointing performance by Moana, it's up to the last three movies to knock my socks off, and I'm confident in the next two, Atlantis The Lost Empire and Hercules. Sure, Atlantis The Lost Empire ain't one of those beloved Disney classics with the big plastic VHS cover, but looking back on it, it's pretty darn good, and at the very least, it is pretty darn deadly, and at this point, that's all I really care about. And since we're in the end game now, gonna need to prove itself in gladiatorial fashion against another strong challenger from the same part of the world, Hercules. In one corner, we've got ourselves a flood that wrecks an entire civilization, and in the other, we have ourselves a complete war between gods and titans with the world of man caught stuck in the middle. So let's set up those dueling death tickers and get down to it. Atlantis. There's a big chase scene with a leviathan early on in the movie that accounts for 171 deaths right off the bat. Adding in the king's death and the ending battle, we suddenly jump up to 185. Though it can be hard to tell how many of the explosions we see signifying certain death, and how many are just like, pew pew pew, boom boom, as I believe is the technical term of what we're watching. Hercules. His kills are mostly taking place during the montage of him completing some of the most famous 12 labors of Hercules. Herc kills the Hydra, the Arimanthian boar, the Nimian lion, which looks suspiciously like Scar, a sea monster that isn't part of the labors, but we'll give him credit for anyway, and then the Minotaur, a Gorgon, and some really scary looking bird, two of which were actually fought by the Greek hero Perseus, but you get the idea. We can also give Hercules credit for killing Nessus, the centaur that's torturing Meg. It's unclear in the movie if he's officially dead or if he's just unconscious, but according to Greek myth, Hercules does indeed kill him, so we're gonna go with that. And no, we're not counting Meg. Sure, she dies, but she has to die and stay dead. Meg gets revived before the end of the movie. Also, you can't count Hades because he already lives in the underworld. So, based off of these early action sequences, Atlantis The Lost Empire has a significant lead. But at the end of the day, this isn't really gonna matter. Because these numbers are tiny compared to the huge catastrophic events in both movies. The sinking of Atlantis and the Titanomachy. And here's where the counting has to get creative. Atlantis The Lost Empire starts with a giant tsunami headed for the island of Atlantis. A protective barrier bubble thing is formed around the center of the island and sinks it to the ocean. It's not as though everyone in Atlantis dies, but we do see a lot of people banging on that bubble from the outside and the bubble only ends up saving just a small fraction of the land of Atlantis. Which leaves us with an obvious question, and a not-so-obvious answer. How many people die when Atlantis sinks? It'd be nearly impossible to get a decent guess at this just from the design of the city that we see at the beginning of the movie, so we're gonna have to go all the way back to the ancient Greek Atlantis story to determine the most likely death toll. Ditto for when Hades releases the Titans onto Earth and they start wrecking house. Let's start with Atlantis. From a historical perspective, all our information about Atlantis comes from the Greek philosopher Plato. You know, the Plato who tells a story about a farmer who finds himself a ring that makes him invisible, but corrupts him morally. A story that J.R.R. Tolkien definitely didn't steal. Anyway, in his dialogue Critias, Plato tells of the continent Atlantis, a 10,000 BC superpower with a great military and tons of technology so advanced that it sank because the gods got jealous and sent a big earthquake slash flood combo to take it down. Sounds fine, cool myth bro, but Plato never mentions how many people live on Atlantis, which would have really done a lot to make my life easier. Bizarrely, the mythical estimates for Atlantis's army ranges from 5 million to over 100 million, and everything in between. But regardless, those numbers give us a bit of an issue because the population of the entire world at the time in 10,000 BC would have been somewhere in the order of 1 to 3 million people. Adding insult to injury, Atlantis probably isn't even from 10,000 BC, because a mistranslation basically changed the entire story to 9,000 years ago when it was originally meant to be 900 years ago. So basically, TLDR, we're looking for some historical event that Plato could have based his clearly made-up story on that he then used to pass off as if it were historically true to all his bros. So what historic clues can we find in Atlantis the movie? Well, the one thing 
thing we actually know is that there was a tsunami, so we just have to find a massive historical tsunami at the right time and place to make this happen. And for that, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Minoan Civilization, located on the island of Crete and most prominent from about 2000 to 1500 BC. The Minoans are most famous for building palaces and being the inspiration for the myth of the Minotaur, but Minoans are also our best proxy for both Atlantis as Plato reported it, as well as how Disney imagined it. The large buildings that we see present in Atlantis the Lost Empire would have been extraordinarily rare in the ancient world, but the Minoans were building palaces and multi-story buildings earlier than any other island civilization that we know of. The Minoan language also checks off the boxes from what we see in the movie. Nobody is really sure what Minoan sounded like because we can't read the basic Minoan writing system, known as Linear A, which parallels the fact that no one can read Atlantean in the movie itself. Yes, yes, I can read Atlantean just like you. You can't, can you? No one can. And most importantly of all, we have an event that would make sense for the quote-unquote sinking of Atlantis. Around 1550 BC, right around the real time Atlantis was supposed to be set without Plato screwing up his dates, the volcanic island of Thera, modern-day Santorini, exploded, destroying part of the island and sending gigantic waves to the shores of Crete, only about 70 miles away. The resulting tsunami devastated the coast of Crete, destroying cities, ruining coastline, and of of course, killing a lot of people. Now, I hear ya, Atlantis is supposed to have sunk into the sea, and, uh, Crete is still very much around. That said, part of the island of Thera sank. You can actually see where a bunch of it is missing even to this day. So the whole idea is still right that this event sunk an island and destroyed a civilization. So for God's sake, after all of that overanalysis, what the heck is the death count? Well, estimates have the eruption of Thera killing 35,000 Minoans on Crete. Wow. And that's to say nothing of the people who are on Thera itself. Even if we want to use a more conservative estimate, those estimates still run in the range of 20,000 deaths. Definitely enough to dwarf any of our other Disney contenders up to this point. So as devastating a historical event as this was based on, the silver lining here is that in the Disney version, there is no way Hercules can beat this, right? I mean, sure, houses are crushed, temples are blown away, but it can't measure up to the explosion of Thera, right? Except, interestingly enough, many people believe that the inspiration for the story of the Titanomachy, the exact scenes that we see take place in Hercules, was the massive eruption of Thera, the same event that we just attributed to the loss of Atlantis. So the long story short here is that the destruction in these two movies are based on the exact same event. So what is it? Like, a tie, then? I mean, effectively, for as much as we can calculate real numbers out of poorly documented historical facts that influenced fictional movies hundreds of years later, yeah. Although Hercules is taking place in Thebes, which is much farther away from Thera than Crete is, so there would be fewer deaths associated with Hercules just by proximity alone. And there you have it, Hercules and Atlantis practically in a tie. I mean, of the two, Atlantis would qualify as the more deadly movie with Hercules in second place, but the two of them have a commanding lead over anything else in the Disney canon that we've covered so far. Congratulations, Disney, on leveraging a devastating global event for children's entertainment. Not just once, but twice. But don't worry, I hear ya. A tie? What? I mean, I don't write the movies, so take it up with old Walt. Oh wait, there is still one more. Dinosaur. That's right. The Disney feature you didn't know you needed, and then definitely continued to not need because it came out in 2000, and we already had the far superior Land Before Time series since 1988. But regardless, it's a movie that the Disney Animation Studios made, and it is here where the buck stops when it comes to Disney deaths. And I know, you're all like, oh, of course, this movie shows the extinction, right? So many millions of dinosaurs die. And as much as I'd like to just finally finally end this with the mass extinction of the dinosaurs, this movie actually doesn't show that event. I swear, that would have been the easy way out. But in the entire film, only five dinosaurs die. Two bad guys, two good guys, and one neutral triceratops. That's it. I know, I couldn't believe it either. But if that's the case, then where else could all the deaths come from? And the grand answer, the answer to where the most Disney deaths come from in the animation studio's 80-year history isn't coming from humans, isn't coming from fish, it's coming from lemurs. Yup. 
prehistoric lemurs. And you might be thinking to yourself, gee, I didn't think dinosaurs and lemurs really lived at the same time, and right you would be. Pretty much. There's some research that mammals and dinosaurs did overlap for a very short time at the end of the Cretaceous period when Aladar, our Iguanodon protagonist, was supposed to have lived. And it just so happens that one of the oldest animal species to exist in this teeny overlapping sweet spot 60 million years ago were lemurs. And yes, historically you still have to really squint at this one to get any kind of scenario where a monkey family would raise a dinosaur, we're just gonna have to go with this one in order to make it to the other side of it. So like I said, very few dinosaurs were actually harmed in the making of dinosaur, but an entire island worth of lemurs were just knocked out in one fell swoop. We see a meteor and the associated fallout land on the uncreatively named lemur island in the movie, sending the entire island up in flames except for this small lemur family and our friendly dinosaur hero. Every lemur on lemur island is now a crispy critter. But of course, that leads to the next obvious question, how in the world do we know how many that is, or even how big Lemur Island is. Well, in the most bizarre twist of luck, we actually know the real-world location of Lemur Island because historically there is only one possible location, and it's the real island off the east coast of Africa called Madagascar. In your biology lesson for the day, the reason lemurs are lemurs is because they evolved all by themselves over millions of years, isolated from all other primate species on the lonely island of Madagascar. All lemurs, even modern lemurs, started back on Madagascar. So this is literally the only place lemur island could be in the entire planet Earth, especially on the order of 60 million years ago when Madagascar had just started to separate from continental Africa. This is also why we only see the dinosaur and lemurs swimming across a narrow channel rather than a huge body of water in the aftermath of the meteor strike. At the time they escaped from lemur island, Island, Lemur Island was just recently Lemur Peninsula. So with that incredible stroke of luck, we now know not only where Lemur Island is, but how big it is. Madagascar is 226,597 square miles in area, but not all of that area is habitable by lemurs. Going by its modern day geography, which is honestly all we got, only about 43,000 square miles of the island is rainforest, which is lemur habitat and also the area area where we see the lemurs living in the movie. So how many lemurs could reasonably be living in 43,000 square miles of jungle? Oh, well. This is impossible to know directly, but the lemurs in the movie would have been precursors to the modern ring-tailed lemur, which has a territory size of 0.14 square miles. That means that you could fit yourself 307,143 lemurs onto Madagascar at territory capacity, which is how many lemurs we would have the potential to lose in Dinosaur. Even if we said it was half that number, even if we said it was a tenth that number. We still have our winner by a long shot. By an apocalyptic landslide, Dinosaur is the deadliest Disney movie of all time. Rest in peace, lemurs, and a moment of silence for all the Disney fallen who've gone before you. So after 58 movies, what does all this mean, my friends? We have come a long way on the Disney death train, and I wanted to highlight how much we've accomplished here by recapping some of our most significant findings. Across the entire Disney canon, 58 original Disney Animation Studio movies, our estimated total deaths are 344,031, which is honestly nothing compared to the number of childhood dreams this show kills on a regular basis. Our overall deadliest Disney movie winner is Dinosaur and a death count of up to 300,000 sapient lemurs. The most deaths of any movie you cared about, or are likely to have seen, however, goes resoundingly to Hercules and Atlantis the Lost Empire with over 20 to 30,000 deaths each by Volcano. Most deaths in a Disney princess movie, as well as Disney's deadliest princess, goes to Mulan with just over 1,200, very respectable number. Disney's deadliest and most effective villain is Scar from The Lion King at 1,659 deaths, the 1,660th death was his own. Most twisted deaths go to Alice in Wonderland where the walrus eats 12 oyster babies. Most tragic death ends up going to the accidentally harpooned opera singing whale in Make Mine Music. God 
just brutally sad. And my personal favorite Disney death goes to Ursula being stabbed in the stomach at the end of Little Mermaid. And now, finally, with this series over and all this being said, you can now go and we can all collectively kill off 2018 to start the old kill count back at zero for 2019. This has been an incredibly fun but totally exhausting project to finish off the year. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. This was a blast. But remember, it's all just a theory. A film theory. And cut.